Hello, and welcome to a bonus box of Warhammer 40K's Grim History from the Beyond. I'm Zekthar, and today we will be going to talk about my favorite Tau in the Milky Way system, Commander Farsight. <clears throat> now, there is no figure in Tau's history as divisive as Farsight, for he is the most famous warrior to hail from the Tau world of Viorla, as well as the protege of the legendary Commander Puritai. Farsight led the Tau Empire to reclaim space that had been invaded by the Imperium. But when he went beyond the furthest reaches of Tau space and established his own independent Farsight enclaves, the Ethereals denounced him as a traitor to the greater good. In fact, I should say there are some interesting parallels between Farsight and Horus Lupercal before he went all, you know, nutty with chaos. And trust me, we will go into that later. But for now, I wish to start a little differently than I normally do. I happened to find an interrogation between an ethereal and an inquisitor of the Ordo Xenos that gives a little understanding to both what the Tau Empire thinks of Commander Farsight, as well as a more complete look at the ethereals and gives us clues as to why Farsight would defect. The following is an interview between Inquisitor Muturian Raleigh and an unnamed male ethereal, the same ethereal later dissected by Magos biologist Charles Darus. So... Do you have a name? Oh, come now. I know you understand me. My servant Darvis said you've been trying to convince him to release me for hours. Your command of our language is actually fairly impressive. What do you want with me? Simply to learn, my nameless friend. <laughs> Forgive my incredulity. Your race has never struck me as interested in learning. <laughs> Mercifully, we aren't all alike. For example, on. That's what your cast calls you, yes? I should be delighted if you would tell me all that you can about the Tavar. Forgive my incredulity. Your race has never struck me as interested in learning. Nonetheless, if you would. Very well. I'm denied the company of my people. I can at least represent the righteousness. The Tavar is the one true pathway. Where gulas place your faith in a god that can affect your life. Not at all. The Tavar brings every Tao to contentment. But but what is it? Selflessness, you dweeb. That's what we call it. The greater good. The knowledge that staring inward, one finds only solitude. But by staring outwards, by devoting oneself to race and its quest for perfection... There is harmony and peace. An ongoing quest. So we admit your empire is not yet perfect? Of course not. What is? The Tavar is the path, Guela, not the destination. And you Greyskins all just mm, agree to follow the same path. Hmm. Is that so hard to believe? Why should we rally against what makes most sense? Each Tal is free to choose their destiny. That they all choose the Talve is merely testament to its righteousness. It is a unifying ideal. Unifying. Ah, yes. I've heard that argument before. And what happens when you happen to find someone who doesn't want to be unified, huh? I, I would guess subjugation. No, no, no. You missed the point. The greater good is no mere diversion. No empty godhood in which... We place our faith. It is a necessity, human. 
It is the only thing that can save the galaxy from itself. We have a saying. Roka shazar tuzgon shazavan. Unity comes to all things in time. Whether they like it or not? All right. Another question. What do you know of Oshova? You think yourself cleverer than me, Gula. But I assure you... Reading my question isn't clever, On. Just a sign that I've hit a nerve. <laughs> I ask you again. What do you know of Oshova? What do you know of Commander Farsight? Well... Let me start you off. It's a story I've heard from a trader at the edge of the Democles Gulf. Seems that Oshova was the great hero of yours in your firecast. Genius at whatever he did. Just as long as what he was doing was fighting. Isn't that how it is with you, Tao? Watercast to talk and debate. Ironcast to shuttle you around. Earthcast to do the dirty work. Everyone with a niche, no interbreeding, no intermixing. So Shova sets off to reclaim some colonies. And naturally, there's an ethereal in charge. Except the arm gets killed, and Oshova ends up in command. Suddenly, there's no one to remind him about the bloody Tauvar. And he's a long way from home. So what does he do, On? I mean, like you said, the Tauvar is something you choose to follow, yes? <clears throat> Surely Oshova would have carried on with the peace and tranquility crap, despite it all. Bon, I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> yes, except he didn't. He set up his own. His very own little empire, without you ethereals telling him what to do. Without your wretched Tava running his life. I mean, you set yourself on. Why should we rail against that which makes most sense? Well... Maybe it only makes sense whilst you lot are in charge. Hmm? <laughs> <clears throat> the silence of the ethereal is paramount here. And one of the big pieces as to why Farsight is so hated by the ethereals. He has simply balked at their supreme authority over the Tau Empire. They can't best him. Imagine if Horus, instead of going loony with chaos and simply rejected his father taking his traitor brothers with him and carving out part of the empire for himself and his brothers. I, I know this seems far-fetched, but not as far as you would think. Now, before Horus turned to chaos, he was already starting to see problems with his father's empire. Not just the fact that he disappeared at the height of the Great Crusade, but the horrible bureaucracy of the empire of man had fallen into. There was also the troubling thought of when the Great Crusade was over, what would become of the Adeptus Astartes? Vicious rumors, which happen to be true, of the fate of the Thunder Warriors, and how after the Unification Wars, the Emperor simply killed all of them because he didn't need them anymore. Now, pardon me, I am getting a little farther away from the Tau than I wanted. But just like Horus, Farsight had discovered problems with the Tau Empire. And just like Horus, he had a decision to make on how to proceed that would change the direction of the entire Tau Empire. <laughs> there I go again, getting ahead of myself. We should start back at the beginning. Oshova, Farsight's true name, was born upon the Tau Sep world of Viorla 
and his meteoric rise through the ranks of the Firecast began the training domes of its capital city of Montier. Enrolled in the planet's junior Firecast academics, as soon as he's able to walk, like all members of his cast, he quickly established himself as a serious and dedicated aspirant with a voracious appetite for information. His peers were gifted too, but the young Shova had a spark of brilliance that stood out from every other Tao of his generation. Within days, it became obvious to his tutors that they had more than a simple fire warrior on their hands. Even in his youth, Shova was fiercely independent and inquisitive, which benefited him greatly. This became apparent when Shova was accepted for training a full three Terran years before the standard enrollment was due. The young Viorlin's martial temperament was the subject of much discussion amongst the academic masters. His physical skills were well above average for his age, and he proved truly remarkable with his ability to retain tremendous amounts of data from its situation he encountered. His abilities to use the knowledge he gained from every experience to assess and predict the actions of those around him was unnerving, and earned him the nickname Shou, which means inner light, and the Tao tongue. Despite being several standard years younger than most of the Tao in the battle drone, Sho's picture-perfect memory and fierce determination earned him a string of perfect scores in the Academy's simulations. His team's casualty count was so low as to be unprecedented, and Sho escaped being tagged by hostile sim ghosts every time he entered a combat exercise, even in the infamous Jungles of a Thousand Eyes. At the time of Shell's graduation to the Firecast, the legendary Commander Puritide was still making a point of personally initiating as many new recruits into the ranks as possible. The famous Commander was on military business on Viorla when Shell's generation of warriors was inducted, and to the great pleasure of Montier's warriors, he agreed to be present for the ceremony. Amidst much bowing and scraping, the Montier Academy tutors told Pure Tide of the student they called Sho, the first warrior to have been enrolled into the Academy at such a young age. As Commander Pure Tide bestowed the rank of Shah's Law upon the Tao prodigy, he asked Sho how he could consistently second-guess even the most devious of traps and scenarios set by his tutors. The young Tao politely explained, that he usually thought of what plans he would set in place if he was the tutor trying to test a team of students, and then work to disable those plans as best as he could. Meaningful glances were exchanged between the assembled dignitaries, but nothing more was said on the matter at the time. Two weeks later, Sho and his fellow initiates were sent to their first war zone against the Arachian incursion on the Western Veal. Whilst behind closed doors, Commander Puritide and his aides discussed the fact that Sho's military acumen and prowess were as promising as they had hoped. Now, as standard procedure, the young Tao served the first four years of his career as a member of the Fire Warrior team of a hundred cadre. Although he was posted to the fiercest war zones of each engagement, and that Sho was always right on the front line, the young Tao proved more than capable during the Firecast's ongoing purges of the Rakian species. En route to the war zone, Shell memorized every fact the Watercast had been able to glean in their dealings with the female Austromystics 
of the many-legged species, and had thoroughly analyzed the battle doctrine of the Iraqian's blade-legged male gender. During the four standard years of the war he spent as a Shah's law trooper, Shoah became known to every warrior in his cadre. His ability to wield a pulse rifle at extreme close range saw him drive back several Iraqian surprise attacks, and he was always quick to push home any advantage he could gain. He quickly earned the trust of his senior officer, Shazu Monaka, and later his respect. This turned to eternal gratitude at the Battle of the Great Web, where Shou shot the Shazu free of a tangled clutch trap, saving him from the egg sacks of the Austro-Mystics and the horrific death that would otherwise have followed. By the end of his tenure as a fire warrior, it was Shou's suggestions that formed the vast majority of his unit's battle plans. A firm believer in the greater good, Shazu Monaka, recommended his charges for their first trial by fire at the earliest opportunity. With the approval of their superior cadre fireblade, the young Tau warrior and his team were shipped back to Viorla for potential promotion. Now, the trial of fire was a traumatic experience. A high level of adversity is the norm for the warrior cast coming of age test. But there were those at the training academy that remembered Cho's inadvertent hand in the fall of their old colleagues and wished to test him all the more harshly for it. Cho passed with fine colors. So great was his score, in fact, that the venerable commander Puritide himself had agreed to train him in the arts of war. Cho was transported to Delith Prime, where he made his way to the peak of Mount Kunji, seat of Puritide's tutelage with only his wits and tenacity to call upon. The journey up the sheer mountainside was a grueling test itself. Yet, by using a system of improvised pulleys and the dead weight of a Kunjan snow lynx he had killed with a makeshift slingshot, Xiao made the journey up the perilous face of the mountain, kilometer by painstakingly kilometer. Soon after he reached the topmost peak, Xiao found Commander Puritide deep in meditation. Seated in focused meditation in front of Puritide were two young Tao warriors. One who later introduced herself as Shazera, a fellow aspirant to the command ranks of the fire cast, and the other, a tacticum but gifted young warrior known as Cass. Through the hardships that were to follow, the three aspirants became as close as Telesera bondmates albeit ones engaged in a bitter rivalry for the approval of their elderly master. Each of Puritide's students had a different style of war and a separate philosophy to go with it. Shou's simmering passion and desire to plunge into the fires of battle saw him gravitate towards the Monka, or killing blow strategies, whilst Shazera was careful and meticulous practitioner of the patient hunter, Kayon. Caius, a withdrawn and strange individual, was unusual in that he sought the mastery of the Monat's way of war. His goal was to become the perfect lone warrior, an army of one that could triumph in any situation with only the materials to hand. Though Sho regularly scored the highest of the training simulations, his peers were not far behind. The competition between them saw each strive for success just as hard as in any true war zone, and in the process, earned the respect of their fellow students. 
Commander Puritide had long ago mastered every one of the Tao's martial disciplines, and more besides. Over the years, he had honed his students' abilities to near-superhuman levels, all the while striving to make them appreciate the alternative strategies available to the wise. When each was asked to fight in the manner of one of their peers, they did well enough, but in truth, they were only going through the motions, purely to ensure their master's approval. Each student had followed his or her own path, and was loath to stray far from it. Now, one by one, the Tao warriors left Puritide's side. Their studies as complete as time would afford. They took their new names and titles from the peak of Mount Konja, Shahs Osho, Shahs Oshazera, and Monat Shahs Okaius. Now, though they would go on to fight in different war zones across the Tao empires, the three disciples of Puritide were all to make their mark on history. Now, Oshoa would make his mark sooner rather than later, because the orc menace had reared its ugly head in the Tal system. Yes, orc talk appeared in the vicinity of Arkunasha without warning or reason. One equinox, a strange solar storm, erupted that appeared to make odd symbols in the sky. When it had subsided, the earth cast sighted something that defied all logic. The eastern void was now dotted with hundreds of energy signatures, every one of them heading on a collision course to Arkunasha. Weeks later, the planet was in the throes of a full-scale war. An orc invasion of vast size had descended, slamming giant asteroid fortresses into the planet's dunes. The crudeness of the orc assault had been its saving grace. The Earthcast's firing solutions could depressurize or destroy a conventional fleet before it reached orbit. But there was nothing conventional about the Greenskin Armada. Even the heavy rail cannons that bristled from the Tau's biodomes had proven next to useless against the porous balls of rock and junk hurtling in their direction. More and more orc craft hurtled out of the sky and crunched into the dunes in a jaw-dropping planetfall the Tau took to calling the Gohoraka, or Death Hail. Hunter and Defender cadres were scrambled to each crash site, but the greenskin seethed out of the impact crater around each fallen asteroid like water overflowing a boiling cauldron. By the time Commander Sho and his fleet reached Arkanusha's orbit, the planet had all but been overrun. With the exception of a few highly mobile strike forces abroad in the desert, the Tau's military presence planet side had been destroyed in a series of disastrous one-sided engagements. The rest of the populace was holed up in the transparent biodomes that ringed the planet, though the orcs had destroyed most of the connecting structures in short order. They had not yet worked out a way to pierce the meters-thick carapaces of the habitats themselves. Each was an island in a sea of invaders, surrounded by barbaric hordes that hammered and hollered on the thick transplastic separating them from their prey. The Tau inside got a good chance to study their persecutors up close, but the habitat's resources were dwindling, and the military forces were pitifully inadequate for the task of repelling the orcs. Without each biodome's dew forms bringing in the regular water they relied upon, 
the life expectancy of Arkunasha's people would be measured in weeks, at best. After his counter-invasion fleet made it to Arkunasha's surface entirely unmolested, Commander Sho was extensively briefed on the situation by the Tau trapped in the Arkunasha's biodomes. The planet's dust storms could be avoided with careful monitoring by the Earthcast suborbital drone network. But according to the Earthcast aerial observations, there appeared to be even more of the violent alien warbands roaming the desert than in the first few weeks of the invasion. Stranger still, the drone scans had confirmed something the Ethereals had originally put down to fearful rumor-mongering. The individual orcs testing the defense of each biodome were slowly getting bigger. Thus far, the bestial aliens had resisted or ignored all attempts to communicate or broker terms, and the watercasts were at a loss in how to proceed. All the greenskin beasts seemed to want to do was to fight. No kidding, they're orcs. <clears throat> Anyways, in his pre-battle meditations upon the subject, Osho found that he could relate to that concept in his heart. He relished the thought of once more risking his life in the name of the greater good. The spectacle of war called to him. The noise, the light, even the letting of blood. These reflections were his first step towards understanding the psyche of the Orc. And in achieving that understanding, turned the tide of the Arkanusha War. Though the Tau had engaged whole alien civilizations before and emerged triumphant, in almost all of those invasions, the Firecast had held the upper hand. This was one of the few times the Tau War Machine would be tested in such desperate, unfavorable conditions. Now, training simulations always included modules where the Tau were outnumbered by their enemies, sometimes as many as ten times over. Here, though, the foe teamed across dunes and their billions Orbital snapshots gained an entry into the atmosphere indicating that the orcs outnumbered the firecast counter-invasion by nearly 400 to 1. When the Earthcast's final observations were relayed to the commander during his descent, he nodded in solemn acknowledgement. His contingent cadres would have to use the weapons of their mind rather than the gauntlet, he said. Against the savage beast, such a strategy was inevitable. The initial engagements against the orcs were intended to re-establish supply routes and test the Greenskins' defenses and capabilities in the meantime, using hunter cadres skimming the surface of the world in devilfish transports and flight-capable battlesuits. He experimented with the enemy by killing enough orcs from long range to ensure their scattered mobs were on the brink of panic. Almost without exception, it was the largest orc in each group that restored order. The simplicity of their military structure was such that it had at first been overlooked. In the orc psyche, might made right, and nothing more. Another observation Osho made was that whenever his troops struck the milling orc armies and faded away, almost immediately fighting would erupt even if no foe was left to engage. The orcs would take an excuse to attack each other. Leadership challenges theft of property, even careless remarks would flare up into brawls. Recordings of these were taken and sent back to the mobile headquarters Osho had established, 
a disc-shaped command center that constantly prowled the dunes on a cushion of anti-gravitic energy. Next came the year-long period known as the Great Thinning. Farsight ordered forward stealth contingents and battlesuit teams to patrol the dunes, locating and destroying the largest orcs in each mob with pinpoint fire before disappearing without a trace. This inevitably sent the rest of the orcs into a frenzy of violence as they cast around for their persecutors before turning on each other. Blood would fly after each kill as the orcs fought over who was in command, and the body count climbed steadily higher. As more and more monitored drones reported back to the high command, Osho watched every recording with cold fascination. Before long, he had deciphered not only the crude system of glyphs the orcs used as writing tools, but also the guttural orc tongue. Soon he was telling his aides what would happen next in each recording event before it had even unfolded. His officers joked that he must have seen the recordings earlier, but they knew full well that their commander had simply come to the understanding his foe well. His command staff were soon referring to him in his new moniker, Shova, or Farsighted. Eh? Eh? See what they did there? Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> the knowledge gleaned from these intercepted messages slowly filtered into the Firecast military doctrine. Wherever the orc glyphs for Boss, Mick, or Doc appeared on an orc vehicle, the hunter cadres would prioritize their destruction with concentrated hammerhead fire or XV-88 broadside battlesuit support, slowing orc response times to a crawl. Though the Tau could not form the syllables of the orc's speech, Osho's Earthcast allies cut audio snippets of orcish challenges and insults into the comm networks that invaded and looted from the fallen Tau. Delivering the right orcish insult at the right time, Osho drove a wedge of dissent between every clan and tribe roaming the desert, sparking a series of minor wars in the process. <laughs> so, sounds a little bit like Lucas the Trickster, but anyways. Within a year, the green-skinned beast that had invaded Arkunasha was chewing on its own tail. Osha's tactics had distracted the orcs to such an extent that the Tau forces were able to get food and water to the people trapped within the biodomes and free the remains of the Urkanashan firecast, further bolstering their ranks. Though many of the Tau Central Command quietly congratulated each other on a war well prosecuted, most of the orc invaders still lived. Throughout both the populace of Arkunasha, and the counter-invasion force, the Tau now universally knew their leader as Oshova, or Commander Farsight. Despite this honor, he was not satisfied with their progress, and knew the fight was far from over. Now, my guess was the majority of these orcs were from the Death Skulls clan, because they began to cannibalize the Tau machinery and the hulking wrecks of their crafts of war. Soon, they were repurposing these makeshift crafts for the orcs as new weapons of war. On top of this, the mech boys were starting to build as well, using the rusted metal of the world itself. As more and more orc vehicles became armored in, or wholly constructed from oxidized metal, the hordes blended in with the desert itself with a form of accidental camouflage. Or still, the Tau discovered just how tough orcs actually are, they were able to survive the terrible rust storms that plagued the planet, 
giving them an edge in the many deserts of the world of Arkunasha. Commander Farsight had expected the orcs to be resourceful, but he had not come to fully appreciate the advantages afforded by their uncanny psyology. The number of the orcs on Arkunasha was actually increasing rather than being slowly whittled down. Oshova and his ethereal masters were forced to consider the matter of orc reproduction. A train of thought no civilized species should actually have to follow. <laughs> but Farsight's most trusted Earthcast advisor, a young genius, Ovesa, believed that the orcs had a fungal component to their gene makeup. He maintained that the spores that they continually shed were flourishing in the Oxidite Desert. If his theories were to be believed... Every morning, the rust dunes, covered with a film of dew, would shiver and collapse to reveal a clutch of immature dune orcs, low in tech level, but spoiling for a fight. Now, ironically, if you'd listen to our former voxes anyways about the orcs, Ovesa is completely and wholeheartedly correct. But anyways, <clears throat> needless to say, the orcs' numbers were actually rising. And... It hit morale like a megaton bomb. The ethereals present in the expedition insisted that it was impossible to channel more resources to Arkanasha. The Tau stationed there would have to overcome this foe on their own. Farsight was forced to abandon his program of assassination and turn his attentions to his own camp. Morale was on the brink of crumbling, and with it, any chance the Tau had of claiming back the planet. Now... Keep in mind, this is the first of many times Farsight would ask for support from the Ethereals in his long career with the Tau Empire. And yet, none would be given. Since his arrival in Arkunasha, Farsight had led a number of strike teams to the front line. His XV-8 Crisis Battlesuit Plasma Rifle had claimed more of the Orcs' ruling cast than any other. The senior watercast envoy that accompanied his expedition, Poor Old Caius, had made a great play at Farsight's victories. Positive propaganda was circulating throughout every biodome and mobile base, but still, Tau spirits were sinking. In deep talks with Poor Old Caius, Commander Farsight came to the conclusion that one of the orc's race's primary weapons was its warlike spirit. The orcs spent little to none of their energies on angst or paranoia, instead channeling everything they had into seeking and fighting battles. Critically, the close quarters abilities of the Firecast were no match for the strength of the brutality of the orc hordes. As the war ground on and the progress graphs of the Tau Central Command took an ever more downward trend, Farsight finished what was to be his definitive work on the Greenskin mindset, known as the Book of the Beast, and it was circulated to every cadre of Fireblade, Battlesuit Shazu, and Kroot Shaper left on the planet. The tactical acumen in its pages was astounding. It taught the Firecast how to think like an orc, to understand their language, even to fight with the fury of an orc in battle if necessary. Above all, it taught them that their commander understood the enemy well, and that the Tau could still win. The next few years saw a transformation in the Tau's approach to the War of Arkunasha. 
No longer did the fire cast dance out of reach, engaging the greenskin menace at close quarters, only when absolutely necessary. Instead, the Tau military machine reverses tactics, driving teams of fire warriors and battlesuits close to blast the part that works wherever Farsight's dune-stalking Pathfinder teams uncovered them. When the orcs mounted one of their fearsome charges, the Tau would hold their ground at the ambush point, kneeling in the rust and laying down a fearsome network of supporting fire that overlapped whenever an orc came close. Should an any greensim make it through the deadly latest, they would be charging into a storm of blazing light from the fire cast time-delayed photon grenades. If necessary, the surviving greenskins would then be shot at point-blank range or even clubbed to death with the barrels of pulse rifles while they reeled from the photon blasts unable to defend themselves from a vengeful Tau. It was a dangerous tactic, perhaps needlessly so. Yet, new life had been breathed into the firecast fighting upon Arknacha. Many of Oshova's pupils took the new tactics with particular zeal. The combatant Commander Brightsword, most of all. Ambassador Poor Okaius ensured the footage of Brightsword and his cadre overcoming an orc charge at close quarters was seen far and wide. Up until that point, the Tau had done little more than defend their biodomes. Now, they were relishing the strategy of an all-out attack. Oshova had put flame in the bellies of his warriors, and it was there to stay. All across the planet, battle broke out with a renewed fervor. In the maze-like canyon networks of the Arkanashian Equator, Oshova lured columns of rust-plated orc vehicles into ever-narrower channels until, with a simple vehicle kill at each end of the armored column, the orcs were trapped in place and slaughtered like herd beasts. Scant miles away, nimble piranhas led orc daka jets and duffed kapas on a merry dance through drone map canyons until one by one the clumsy orc pilots collided. Farsight's crude mercenaries feasted on a daily diet of dune orc flesh, adapting to the environment until their skin was tough enough to withstand even the red storms. Everywhere, the teachings of Farsight's Book of the Beast took their toll. As the hunter cadres mastered its methods, Oshova led his armies against greenskin hordes that outnumbered them hundreds to one and emerged triumphant. Slowly but surely, the progress graphs in Central Command began to change. During this unprecedented period of success for the Tau upon Arkunasha, the people of the biodomes were extracted and moved to the natural fortresses of the highlands. Away from the comforts of home, but safe enough to survive whilst the war raged below. The hunter cadres continued to thin out and then eradicate the orc armies, milling across the dunes in a series of Monka strikes that were piteously efficient. Then came an innovation from the orc ranks that changed the face of the war once again. Though the bog had now been reduced to less than a quarter of its former size. The desert was still infested. Dune orcs pushed their way out of the red sands with every dawn. And the docks at the head of the bog had an almost necromantic talent for stitching fallen warriors together. Normally it's the use of staples and you're good. <clears throat> Anyways. The tenacity of the orc army was incredible. Yet it was the orc's earth-cast equivalent, 
the individuals known as the mechs, that robbed the Tau of their greatest strength. Ghoul's Gorge, named for the cannibalistic atrocity that had taken place there between two rival crew kindreds, was a vast open canyon that howled with fierce desert winds. Battle erupted when a vast horde of orcs sought to push through the gorge and fall upon the biodomes beyond. In their midst was a giant drill-armed walker designed to breach the transplastic shells of the domes, as much a pagan idol as a weapon of war. Farsight had no inclination to see if it would actually work. He drove his teams in close, harrying the orc calm from above whilst they were still bottlenecked in the gorge. As plasma fire rained down, shimmering domes flickered into existence above each mob lit by energies cascading across their bubble-like surfaces. Even the drill titan Stompa was protected by this forced dome. The heavy rail rifle rounds of Farsight's broadside teams simply disintegrated on impact. The ensuing battle was torturous for Farsight's Tau. They could not abandon their charges in the biodomes. And yet their fire was all but useless against the flashing bubble fields of the orcs. The impetuous young commander Brightsword mounted a close-range battlesuit attack on the rearmost orc mobs, and he and his team quickly established the only way to circumvent the bubble fields was to get inside them, placing the Tau just where the orcs wanted them to be, in close combat. So began the Massacre of Ghoul's Gorge, the most disastrous battle yet to have taken place during the entire Arkanasha War. Every time the Tau penetrated a bubble field in order to strike at the greenskins within, the orcs would charge headlong into their foes, guns blazing. Close combat erupted along the length of the gorge, as the cramped conditions of the Tau had engineered for the battle prevented them from using hit-and-run tactics. Though Farsight himself used a daring vertical strike to immobilize the clanking, fat-bellied driller at the heart of the orc horde, he was forced to order his cadres to withdraw before their losses became untenable. The commander reluctantly retreated to his mobile headquarters to reconsider his strategy. In consultation with his ethereal advisors, Farsight once more respectively requested reinforcements from Viorla. The war hung in a balance, he claimed. A determined assault on key orc positions could see the course of the entire campaign and in favor of the Tau. There was a lengthy silence before the ethereals replied that a Tau ship from Viorla was indeed inbound. Yet, they would say no more on the matter. When a lone orca dropship descended upon Arkanasha, Farsight and his closest survivors met in person atop a massive natural plateau in the Argap Highlands. When the large ramp opened at the Orcas 4, the promised reinforcements stepped out. Only two ceremonial honor guards and a single ethereal. Farsight did well to choke down the surprise and frustration that rose in his chest. A single ethereal? Their presence was good for morale, eh, to be sure, but they could hardly be counted a concrete asset, and certainly not an auxiliary hunter cadres that Oshova had been hoping for. He turned to his own ethereal advisors in dismay, but held his tongue. It is well that he did, for his actions were being monitored very closely indeed. 
The newcomer introduced himself as Anshi. Yes, it's that Anshi, the warrior monk of Viorla. He was a veteran of scores of battles. His many scars attested to that, and he carried himself with the surety of a warrior lord. The ethereal calmly explained that over the next few years, the fire caste were to withdraw entirely from Arkunasha, taking as many of the planet's colonists with them as they could. He would oversee the extraction personally. There would be no more attacks. There would be no more killing blows. Only defense. The plateau upon which they stood would be their fortress, and they would protect it with every iota of their being, until every living Tau had left the planet. This they would do for the greater good, effective immediately. Farsight nodded curtly at the news and bowed low in obedience. In a secret part of his soul, however, he felt a great disquiet stir. Nevertheless, a senior ethereal had spoken. A simple commander could not hope to appreciate the full scale of the High Council's plans. Over the course of the next year, Farsight enacted the Ethereal's Council's plans to the letter, consolidating the civilian Tau into a series of hastily constructed biodomes atop the Agrop Plateau. He defended the natural fortress with every weapon and strategy at his disposal. Though he lost thousands of good soldiers in the process, he further whittled down the numbers of the wog that had now converged upon his position. In the process, he continued to attack their command structure, prioritizing deaths of the mechanics, medics, and warrior leaders until there was no more left amongst them. In their haste to make war, the orcs that had encircled the plateau relentlessly ground themselves into its defenses until the valleys below were choked with corpses. Not one of them had the vision or perspective to retreat, and Farsight pitilessly exterminated any who broke through the cordons. Many of Commander Farsight's pupils, Brightsword, most strident amongst them, called for revenge for the fallen. They proposed a final push to exterminate the aliens once and for all before extraction. Oshova somberly argued against this course of action. So it was. The Tau colonists were evacuated from Arkunasha, and the Firecast along with them. Now, in the end, the Firecast returned to Arkunasha the next year. With the exhaustive cardiographic information harnessed by Farsight's Warscaper drones, and with the Book of the Beast to guide them, they made short work of the orcs left there, taking less than a year. Soon the planet glittered like a jewel amongst the stars once more. But Commander Farsight was not there to witness it. His destiny was elsewhere. The Tau had been assailed by a new foe, the Imperium of Man. Now, what takes place next, we have discussed in detail in two of our voxes about the Tau, known as the Democles Gulf Crusade. Due to this fact, we will skip a bit forward to the aftermath of the Democles War. Uh, feel free to listen to our voxes about the Crusade and the Tau Empire and the upstarts of the galaxy. Yet, moving on, the Tau Empire had faced off against an insanely strong opponent and emerged victorious. Uh, kind of. But the cost of that victory had been high indeed. Every one of the worlds settled on the other side of the Democles Gulf had been left to the Imperium in the early stages of its crusade. 
and one of the prime sept worlds of the empire had been badly mauled. The notion of Tau natural supremacy and the universe had been shaken to its core. In this time of doubt, ethereal master An Va negotiated with the then ethereal supreme An Hui, and a plan of reconquest led by Oshova was initiated. Anve's decision for Farsight to lead the reconquest was not taken lightly, but when the matter was settled, it had the full power of the master behind it. The first few weeks saw Oshova elevated from the status of hero of the Arkunasha War and Democles Gulf Crusade to that vaunted savior. With the persuasion arts of the water cast as his tools, Anve began a propaganda campaign that saw Oshova's military success become oft-told legends almost godlike. Statuses to Farsight's greatness were erected in every major battle dome, pod complex, and naval harbor across the worlds of the first sphere expansion. Fire warriors of every rank had images of the hollow cuts of Farsight somewhere in their possession, sometimes even displayed alongside those of Anhui and Anva themselves. For Oshova, the attentions were bewildering and unwelcome. The commander was greeted with the hunter's salute so many times each day that he feared that he would wear out his arm joints before the crusade even started. Yet, he bore it all stoically, understanding that the empire needs its heroes. In the councils of the ethereals, however, there was a concern that Oshova would not live up to the propaganda. The Democles Gulf would not fall twice to the wiles of the Tao diplomats. This time, the Firecast would have to lead the charge on every world. If Dalith was any indication of the Imperium's threat, blood would be spilt in great measure, and these worlds had no little access to reinforcements. The result of all the efforts saw the mobilization of the greatest fleet the Tao Empire had yet seen. The sheer number of Tao battleships Navy vessels, escorts, colony ships, war spheres, grab pulse tugs, drop ships, and outrider patrols assembled for the coalition defied belief. Once the preparations were complete, Anhui gave one of his final speeches, and the fleet of the Great Reclamation was launched in the Democles Gulf amongst grand celebration. Something in Farsight's gut felt strange. But he was the model of a noble commander nonetheless. If the Empire needed a conqueror, a conqueror he would be. No, I must say, this is a great stopping spot. And unfortunately, we have run out of time today. Now, before I go, though, I must mention again how the parallels between Farsight and Horus are uncanny and worth going through. Both were incredibly charismatic leaders who have a kinship and love for their troops, and through their tactical brilliance move rapidly up the ranks. Even their favorite tactics are eerily similar. Now, Farsight's favorite tactic is called the Montka, which is a carefully planned attack which is designed to wipe out critical enemy defenses or units in single well-placed strikes. Once the stronger points of the enemy resistance are crushed, the remainder of the force can generally be finished off more easily. Sound familiar? Well, for a few folks who listen to the Ulanor campaign, it should. Horus's favorite tactic to use is called the Spear Tip, 
The doctrine for performing a spear tip maneuver was simple. A vanguard of the greatest warriors striking hard and fast at the enemy's stronghold, killing the enemy commander, leaving the foe leaderless. Both are well-respected and loved by their men. But at this point, what I find interesting is both have been uplifted to more than just a great general, but a hero in the eyes of their people by the leader of their respected races. The emperor proclaimed Horus the war master of the Imperium, while Farsight was declared hero of the empire by Anva. Yet, things are about to change. Both have been made more by their leaders, and soon, in both parallels, they will discover they have been betrayed. Now, we know Horus' response. He goes off the deep end and allies himself with the Chaos Gods, causing a civil war that wrecks the Empire of Man. But what will Commander Farsight do? Well, if you want to know, tune in next week. <clears throat> if you enjoyed this box, feel free to subscribe, comment, follow, and like. And if you really liked our stuff, please join our membership squad on our YouTube channel, Tales of Ashraka. Now, also, keep in mind we have a shop running, so feel free to check it out to get some stuff. Have a great day. And as always, <clears throat> until next time, this is Ekthar, signing off. Thank you.